Hi, and welcome to the latest episode of SEPAD Pod, the sectarianism proxies and desectarianization podcast based at Lancaster University. I'm Simon Mayburn, and today I'm joined by Francesco Belcastro, lecturer in international relations at Derby and a fellow at the Center for Syrian Studies at the University of St. Andrews. Francesco, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Hello, Simon. It's really exciting to have you on, Francesco. There's a lot to talk about, um, your work on Syria and, and a number of other aspects. So I'm really, really pleased that we could make this happen. Thank you very much. I'm a, I'm a big fan of the podcast, so I'm, I'm, very, I'm very excited to be finally my turn. <laughs> That's kind of you to say. Well, I hope we don't let you down. Um, I've seen your ratings. They're, they're so high. I'm feeling a bit of pressure to be <laughs> Well, you're, you're too kind. You're too kind. But, Francesco, we'll, we'll start as I normally start, if I may, please. And can you tell us a little bit about how you got interested in, in working on this, this topic on the Middle East and, and Syrian politics, please? Sure. So it, I guess it happened in stages. So uh, when I was a teenager, uh, I was very interested in politics, in domestic politics. I was, I guess, what you would define as a grassroots activist. Uh, and we're talking about so the late 90s and, and early 2000s. And one of the big topics around was uh, there was the end of the Oslo process and, and then later the, the, the second intifada. So I guess I got interested in, in um, Palestinian-Israeli relations or Arab-Israeli uh, conflict, if you want. Uh, and that was sort of a starting point. And then I guess when you get interested in, in that, then you start reading more about uh, the region. Um, then when I went to university, I did my undergraduate in political science with, with a sort of specialization in international relations and Middle East politics was one of the things I was I was interested in. My my engagement with Syria, though, it's, it's sort of um, quite random because <laughs> when I was doing my master's, um, I was working on something completely different. Uh, but my flatmate uh, at the time, that then became one of my best friends, was, was Syrian. Um, so after our MA, after we finished, uh, he got married and invited me to Syria. And I went there, I think it was 2008. Okay. And I absolutely fell in love with the country. I was adopted by his friends. <laughs> uh, um, I spent a, perhaps a couple of weeks there. And then later on, um, I went back. So I really loved the country. Uh, and then I decided that uh, the country was also, because it has a very rich history and a very interesting foreign policy, it would be a great case study for... Uh, for my PhD when I decided to do one. But my first interest academically was more, I guess, international relations than Middle Eastern studies. And I brought these two things together, uh, and that's how I ended up doing a, a PhD uh, where Syria was my case study. Then I guess spending a lot of time in scenarios with, with Ray in the bush, it's unavoidable to get uh, yeah, more of course. in the country. <laughs> Yeah, that that's certainly not not surprising. Um, let Let's just dwell on your your time in Syria for a little bit, if I may, Francesca. What What are your abiding sure. memories of that time? Uh, well, the first thing is absolutely stunned uh, how beautiful the country was. Um, uh, Damascus, in particular, but not only. And I guess because I had um, so friends of my friend uh, um, adopted me, as I, as I said. Um, I got to know quite a lot of people, and, and I found that uh, I was very fascinated uh, about the culture. And I didn't know much about Syria because, as I said, my first my first uh, engagement was with the um, Palestinian-Israeli conflict, so I didn't know much 
in terms of, of the politics. So then I, I when I came back, I started reading a bit more. Um, and yeah, I guess it was it was sort of a mix of culture, the politics and, and people. So that's why I came back the, the year after uh, or two years after. And I, I traveled a bit more and, and I was a bit more sort of aware of uh, the politics of the country as well. So then it was not only tourism, it was a bit more, um, yeah, sort of try to understand a bit more uh, about the culture and I guess the politics, yes. And I guess the, the PhD flows quite naturally from that, given your interest in, in international relations as well. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I was interested in, in sort of foreign policy particularly, uh, I still am. Um, and, and my starting point was more sort of theoretical, if you want. Um, but Syria just sort of randomly uh, uh, made a very good case study. Uh, it was very, it was, it's very interesting. It's, it's very sort of uh, rich foreign policy. Uh, and, and it had sort of, I guess it made a good test, if you want, uh, mm. for, for what I wanted to look at. Um, so I, I kind of brought the two things together and applied for the PhD and found myself in St Andrews and then, yeah, and things sort of happened from there. Yeah, well, I'm I'm sure that was it was quite an experience working with with Ray, one of the 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 heavyweights of of Syrian studies in the international relations of the Middle East more broadly. Uh, Francesco, this this interest in in IR and foreign policies, what is it in particular that you are interested in? What are the the driving forces of your intellectual curiosity there? Well, I have to say. I- and on this, I, st- I still really see myself as a, as a student, someone who's got very broad interests. Uh, but because I started by looking at kind of traditional theories of international relations, and, and then uh, I, I was supposed to, to actually show more modern theories, uh, I guess what my interest was, was and still is, um, it's in the kind of interaction between, I guess, structural uh, factors and and, and other factors such as ideology. Um, but I always sort of, so my starting point was my, my interest in politics. Right. And then kind of foreign policy was something which I looked at as, as kind, of a, kind of a consequence of my interest in politics, but I never really separated the two. So I guess that's why I'm still very interested in, in the relation between the international and the, and the domestic. Right. Um, I think foreign policy is a great way of, of looking at and understanding politics, if you want. Yeah, yeah, I, I would certainly be, be sympathetic to, to that view. Can I just, before we, we go on to the book, Francesco, can I just get you to elaborate slightly on, on this point about the relationship between structure and, and interests and identity and ideology? What, what exactly are you meaning by structure? Are you meaning that the domestic forces, the domestic constraints that, that limit the capacity of of states and actors to operate, or are you talking more regional uh, structures or, or indeed international structures? Where is it that you're interested in? It's, it was mostly sort of the regional international system, so structural as in, as in a sort of realist uh, right. sense okay. of, of kind of... Um, I guess there my, my starting point, I was very interested in the work of classical realists particularly, because uh, I was fascinated by the concept of, uh, of, of power, and I guess... Power was really the, the thing that brought together my my interest in international relations and, and my uh, being influenced by uh, people like Wolfers or, or Morgenthau and my sort of domestic 
politics as, as a lefty. So that, that was kind of where the two things came together. Right. Um, so, yeah, structure, I guess, in international relations, and I guess it means also international system and regional system, but there is also that kind of other aspect, which is more from my background as a as a political activist. It's an interesting marriage, that, that background as a political activist and then the, the more sort of traditional... I, I say conservative with a small c view of, of power that the classical realist proposes. How do you find that, that matching and how do you find that that gels with your own personal politics? Well, I think it's um, it's not unique because um, the irony was that, is that despite the fact that realism is perceived as sort of conservative in a way, um, a set of theories, a lot of classical realists actually uh, background in, in leftist politics. So yeah. Hans Morgenthau, for example, was a, a lawyer for trade unions before being a, 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 an, an IR scholar. Uh, Arnold Wolfers was, a, was a, I guess you would define a, a social democrat. Uh, um, so several of several classical realists came from this experience of sort of uh, uh, being politically active, I guess, uh, having, having to face uh, the connection between, or, or the contrast sometimes between power and and, and and ideology, and that's what what brought them to to a kind of understanding of the world, which is the one that we associate with with classical realism. Sure. Okay. That, that's that's a useful thing to to just touch on, I think, and and I think it's important to remember that that scholars such as Morgenthau had that particular background that that I think is often forgotten and, and overlooked by people working on 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 realism and, and applying it to the world. Well, absolutely. I was lucky enough to have um, the late professor uh, Nick Renger as my second supervisor. Right. Obviously worked a lot on, on these particular uh, aspects. And, and I guess one of the things that he always used to say about, about so realism and classical realism particularly was that it's way more complex set of, of ideas than, than people often acknowledge. And I guess what you, what you mentioned goes back to that idea. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Um, let, let's talk about the book, Francesco. So the book, uh, titled Syrian Foreign Policy, The Alliances of a Regional Power, published by Routledge earlier this year, which is very exciting. I've got a copy of it. I'm about a third of the way through. Um, my oh, summer yes. reading... <laughs> My summer reading has been delayed a little bit by um, by other things, but it's it's a fascinating read. For anyone who's not got a copy of it yet, I urge you to do so. But but Francesco, can you tell us a little bit about what you're wanting to do with the book, please? Yeah, so I guess it goes back to what I mentioned before about um, international relations and foreign policy. So the starting idea was to look at um, the intersection between some of the ideas and concepts used by uh, um, classical realist scholars, and particularly uh, the idea of state goals. Because something which is very prevalent in the work of people such as Arnold Wolfers particularly was the idea of sort of the idea that states are not all the same, right? So if you take structural realism, there is this conception that states are essentially all the same and, and there isn't so much room for agency. But yeah. classical realists had way more of this conception. So I thought this allow you for, to, to integrate systemic analysis with other other concepts, uh, um, a, a more sort of flexible theoretical framework. 
And then as I developed this, I got more interested into, into concepts and ideas such as ideology, which are usually associated with constructivism or, or with other schools of thought. So really, in theoretical terms, it was an attempt to uh, uh, bring together and be the framework that explains alliances with foreign policy, firstly, and, and alliances as part of foreign policy. Because one of the things that the book argues is that you cannot really separate alliances from from foreign policy in a way that, that some scholars do. Um, so it was, yeah, this was sort of the theoretical uh, attempt that I was doing. And then Syria was, uh, is uh, the case study, and I think a very, very useful one, a very interesting one for what I wanted to look at. Sure, and I can certainly see why that would be the case, given the complexity of Syrian foreign policy. And... I think it's interesting how Syrian foreign policy brings together not only the the sort of the regional politics and foreign policy making, but also the domestic features, the domestic features of, of politics that plays out across the the region as well. Yeah, exactly. And, and what I, what the book tries to do is it starts from 1963, so from from the beginning of the Ba'ath era, and it looks at uh, sort of the um, Salah Jadid years, where, where I argue the foreign policy of the country was more ideological, uh, and the book discusses what it means, uh, um, ideological in, in, in the context of pan-Arabism. Um, and then it, it looks at uh, 1970 and, and the uh, time when Afiz al-Assad uh, took power and as it gradually consolidated uh, its power, how the foreign policy of the country changed. Uh, and as you said, Syria makes for a very interesting um, case study, both because of, of the domestic development, so you have sort of a change the domestic level, but also because it has to deal with what you would define as a, a difficult neighborhood. Um, mm. So that, there's always that kind of external threat, uh, which if you take a sort of structural uh, point of view, it, it would kind of result in a kind of balance, balance of threat, balance of power. Uh, um, foreign policy behavior. So the book kind of looks at these two dimensions and, and it argues in a way that uh, while there is some continuity in, in, in Baptist rule, um, really Afiz al-Assad taking over um, does bring some, some substantial changes in the foreign policy of the country because of a set of factors. So what I say is that it's not necessary that this ideology was different from the one of Salah Jadid, it was just that it, that it brought up a kind of different overlook to foreign policy, which was, if you want, Syria first, if you want to use a, a, a kind of a more modern language, but was more more oriented towards national interest and less towards um, pan-Arab uh, interest. Yeah. Not because he was not uh, personally uh, convinced about that, but, but because he had a different understanding of, of, of foreign policy and of, of what... Uh, were the demands for the country at the time. Sure. It, this really comes out in the discussion of Iraq and Syrian uh, foreign policy with and towards Iraq, which I find absolutely fascinating at this time, given they're both ostensibly Ba'ath powers, but yet differ on so many things. Yeah, I guess it does. And I guess it's also sort of the, the contrast or, or the... Um, the phase in the late 70s and then and then early 80s in which essentially there is a choice, right? Uh, um, there is an attempt by uh, by Syrian uh, policymakers to uh, open up to Iraq, but is that is there a real opening? Is that strategic? And does ideology play a role there? 
And there's obviously like fascinating stuff written in that. I think it's particularly interesting because then in the decade after, you have 179, uh, the alliance with Iran, and then obviously straight after that, the Iran-Iraq war starts. So there is a lot of pressure uh, from other Arab powers, from the Arab public opinion, on Syrian policymakers to realign, to drop uh, the alliance with Iran and, and realign with Iraq. So I guess then you really see um, the strategic calculations. And let's not forget that at the time, most people would, were assuming that uh, Iraq would easily win the war yeah. and that the yeah. regime in Iran changed. So I guess there are three components there. There is sort of the structural uh, um, aspect of, of balance of threat, balance of power. There is the idea of where this ideology, uh, what, what kind of role does ideology play and, and how did the meaning of um, pan-Arabism change from the 60s to the 70s and the 80s. And then finally, there is this aspect of um, Afiz al-Assad, his personality and, and his uh, inner circle and what was their reading of the of, of the developments. Uh, but it's very eventful, So and there are changes at regional level, which we, I guess, make it for a, for a good... Um, test for a good case study. Yeah, of course. Now, the the fascinating thing for me is when when the Saudi um, influence starts to to play out on on Syria and on on regional politics, particularly after the Iranian revolution. And I know you've you've written on this in an article in the Journal of Balkan Near Eastern Studies that is forthcoming, I believe. Is it still forthcoming? Uh, yeah, I think it should be out soon. I, I haven't. Uh, uh, yeah, it should be. I, I believe it's not out yet. I, right. Okay. <laughs> yeah, well, it should be the end of the year. So I'm looking forward to reading this because I think it's it's a fascinating um, it's a fascinating set of of interrelated complex relationships when when Saudi Arabia starts to get involved with with Syria concerned about not only uh, Iran but also Iraq and and tries to woo Syria back toward the Arab fold if you will to to quote Madawi al-Rashid but this is obviously yeah. before the Arab uprising so can you say a little bit about how that all plays out please well I, I found that the of the I think it's six case studies um, that I looked at uh, in the book that the Saudi one was the one on which I just didn't manage to engage there was enough space in the uh, in the book to to engage with also because even though it's a very important alliance, it's something that just a few people looked at, uh, particularly in some in some historical phases. So I think what, what makes it so interesting is this idea that these are two powers that are completely different in so many ways. Uh, if you look at ideology, uh, um, if you look at their position within the regional system, within the inter- the, their international alliances, and yet there seems to be some sort of understanding or some sort of informal alliance or, or, or some kind of trade-off between the two countries, which, as you mentioned, on, on one side uh, manifests itself in this constant attempt by Saudi Arabia to uh, um, build a sort of regional um, or maintain some sort of regional stability. Uh, and part of this is it's kind of engaging constantly with, with Syrian policymakers. Um, and I guess the, the sort of central... Uh, um, key uh, phase there are, are the early 70s for me um, because there is this 
short uh, period in which um, Syria, Egypt and Saudi Arabia are aligned around uh, 73 and, and obviously for, for a short period afterwards, which I guess from the Saudi point of view, it's something that guarantees regional stability and Saudi Arabia um, has an interest in, in sort of maintaining that. So, so this idea of engaging with, with Syria and, and try to sort of break the alliance with Iran, um, it's something that has to do, I guess, particularly with, with Saudi's position in, in the region and, and its concerns about uh, um, regional threats to, um, to the Saudi monarchy. Yeah, and I, I love the title of this piece, An Odd Foreign Policy Couple. I think that, that sums it up so nicely, the, sort of the complexity and, and nuances of these, of these relations. But what, what, uh, what does the Syrian state want to do with, with regard to Saudi Arabia? How does it treat uh, the kingdom with regard to its, its alliance or its, its complex relations, perhaps I should say, with, with both Iraq and Iran? Well, yes, I'm going to quote Ray in the bush here. I think it's, it's, I can't remember which of his books says, but in a way, uh, I think he says that, that Syria is it's selling its foreign policy. So Syria has this legitimacy as, a, as a, the beating heart of the Arab nation, as the most pan-Arab of all states. So it kind of sells its foreign policy to Saudi Arabia. So Saudi Arabia benefits from having positive uh, relations with Syria, and Syria in exchange gets uh, diplomatic support and uh, and cash and money and, and investments. Um, so it's kind of an uneven relation. Uh, but I guess from the point of view of, of um, Damascus, there are these two aspects. One of, of that is at, at some crucial stages, I'm thinking, for example, Lebanon in, in different phases, um, 76, when there is the deployment of the um, Arab force uh, uh, that tries to uh, bring the um, Lebanese civil war under control. Then in 1989-1990 with the, with the Taif agreements. In both cases, Syria benefits from uh, um, Saudi Arabia's blessing and, and, and support and uh, financial and diplomatic. And there is also the issue of uh, Saudi uh, money being pumped into into Syria. So I guess that's from Damascus' point of view. These are these are the benefits. Sure. And sure. There is a sort of attempt to um, keep together, um, which is particularly difficult during the Iran-Iraq war. Keep together um, the uneasy alliance, the odd, the odd couple with with Saudi Arabia with the alliance with Iran. And I guess at some stages it becomes particularly um, difficult, and it's when uh, uh, when Iran invades Iraq's territory, there's a lot of pressure on, on al-Assad to distance himself uh, from, from Iran. But there is this constant attempt to uh, um, keep the benefits of both relationships, if you want. Sure. So... I mean, let's let's leave history behind us just for a little bit, if I may. And I I love the historical focus because I think it it offers such rich contextual background for for understanding the the contemporary world. And obviously, it's so important in and of its own right. But can you tell us a little bit about how how serious foreign policy plays out? post-2011 then? I mean, this is obviously such an important issue and has ebbed and flowed and we've seen such 
such a range of different sort of relations and and alliances being formed and obviously with serious consequences for the people of Syria and for regional politics. Mm. How do we understand Syria's foreign policy post-2011 and, and moving forward from now? Well, I guess the starting point for me would be that there is a parallel, an historical one, and it's in the, in the fact that the country is so central in, in uh, regional politics that either it's a strong actor or it's a victim of its of its neighbors. Um, so before 1970, obviously, I'm not in any way uh, endorsing Hafiz al-Assad in, in, uh, a, as, a, as a model of a, of, of a ruler, but before 1970, uh, different, in different phases, Syria was a victim, uh, uh, was a kind of battlefield for um, for regional, for potential re- regional hegemons. When power gets consolidated in, in the 70s, Syria becomes a central actor. And I guess what happens with the civil war is that there's again a return uh, to, to other actors, um, regional actors in, interfering in, in different ways. And I guess part of it is because of the, uh, of the centrality of the country. And in a way, also, the idea that, that Syria is so important in, in, in regional alliances is it's one of the reasons, I guess, why so many uh, uh, regional actors then wanted to in, intervene and, and interfere in, in the civil war, because the civil war is perceived by regional actors as an opportunity to, either as, as a threat or as an opportunity to gain something over, over, over regional rivals. So I guess... Decentrality can be can be a curse or, or blessing, and and when the when the regime sort of started uh, uh, losing control over over the country, uh, and then it, it sort of it was an advantage because its allies were, were ready to intervene in, in, in its favor, but also it it sort of overlapped very much um, with regional rivalries, rivalries for example, and, and uh, issues such as the ones that you've looked at. Uh, in your own research uh, with Saudi Arabia and Iran, so so that kind of became more of a factor than it than it would have done in different civil wars sure. in the region. Francesco, before um, I, I go back to to the question about Syrian foreign policy, sort of now as the the, the conflict draws towards perhaps a, a close or or an ending, I, I don't really know how best to conceptualize what's happening in Syria now, but. To what extent do you think we should talk about this as a civ- as a civil war? I mean, it seems to me that that as as you've documented, as as Chris Phillips has documented, we're dealing with with a conflict that is so complex and draws in so many outside powers that that it's not just sort of meeting the characteristics of a civil war anymore. Well, certainly, if you if you look at the at any academic definition of, of a civil war, there's perhaps not much left in Syria. That, that resembles a civil war anymore. Um, but I think the struggle is to to keep together these different narratives, right? Yeah. Because you have this sort of regional conflict and, and this um, meddling by regional international powers, but we, we shouldn't forget what, how this started, right? And, and we shouldn't forget that this was essentially a, a, a domestic issue at the beginning. And, and it was peaceful protest against an authoritarian regime, and it was the violence and, and, and the repression by the authoritarian regime that transformed these 
into into an armed conflict and, and a civil war. Now it's I, I guess now it's hard to keep this these different narratives together, right? Uh, but it's um, I think Chris Phillips' books book does that very well. It, it focuses on, on international actors, but it doesn't avoid engaging with the fact yeah. that there is a, a domestic story to it, which is how it all started. Uh, but it's challenging, and, and, and obviously as, as um, scholars, as academics, we, we, we are honest and open about our own limitations, and it's, and it's hard to, to look at both, I guess. That's a, a really good way of putting it. I, I'd not thought of it like that, but I think that's a that's a way of, of staying true to the origins of it, I guess, and to the, the, the domestic forces and the sort of parabolic pressures that really resulted in, in the conflict being what it is today, but starting from within. So I, I like that. That's that's a good way of, of framing it. Um, let, let's go finally, Francesco, to uh, to my, my last question if i may but one that that i'd like to just revisit where does syria's foreign policy go from here we know that that obviously the iranians and the russians have played a a prominent role uh in in helping the assad regime survive but we also know that the gulf states previously uh very anti-assad but have have um talked about reopening embassies and consulates and and perhaps in some cases might have so where do we go from here? What What is the future of Syria's foreign policy and its relations with, with regional powers? Uh, that is a very difficult question. I guess it's, <laughs> Sorry. it's a question, <laughs> Sorry. I guess it's a question of, of agency first. So how much agency does the regime have at the moment, uh, which is something that I struggle to understand. But at one level, there is this narrative of, of the regime playing the Russians against the Iranians and, and being able to sort of um, at least semi-function as a as a um, as a state. Uh, the other hand, there is this other narrative, which is of a regime that essentially doesn't exist anymore, and is just uh, following someone else's agenda. I, I think the truth is somewhere in between, and I think this is also very very central to the question of, of Syrian foreign policy, because obviously, if you have a regime that is not able to decide its own foreign policy, some politics, it won't decide its own foreign policy. And obviously the aspect that you mentioned of, of the reopening uh, from, from several Gulf states, it's it's important. It's important um, both in terms of foreign policy, because I, I guess if there is a real opening in the future, it, it gives leverage to the regime and its relations with Russia and Iran as well. Um, and I, I've read the news in the last couple of days and uh, a big, um, there's been a big discussion about the uh, Damascus International Fair that takes place in a couple of weeks. I believe it's the end of August because a couple of um, Arab countries, Oman particularly, but the UAE as well, are sending bigger uh, delegations this year and it's not exactly clear who's going to go, but people are reading it. Is it opening? Is it? Does it mean more... Uh, investment. But going back to the, to the question of, of foreign policy, it seems to me that this is a regime that on its own at the moment is not able to do much. Right. Um, you see this on, on the um, battlefield. Uh, it's, it's not able to, to win any ground back 
um, without the, the help of um, Iranian and, and, and Russians uh, with boots on the ground. I mean, I think we've all seen the reports in the last couple of weeks about uh, how much uh, the Russians and later on the Iranians had to commit to this um, offensive, inter-offensive in, in Idlib in the last few days because the regime on its own uh, wasn't able to advance. Uh, it's, this regime has got maybe two or three fighting units. Uh, the rest, it's all, it's all the numbers, but um, they're not really uh, uh, units that the regime can rely on uh, to, to fight um, anywhere in the country, let alone uh, to regain ground from, from other um, actors. Um, so there is obviously the issue which we didn't touch on, on, on the engagement with Turkey and, and with other powers that are present um, in, in Syrian territory. And, yeah. And Al-Assad it's stated again a couple of weeks ago that his goal is to regain all of all the territory that's been lost. And I don't know whether this goes within foreign policy or whether it's, it's something else, but it seems to me that, that we are a long way from talking about a state that's got a independent foreign policy as, as such. I don't know whether that answers your question, but I guess I haven't got an answer very clear in my mind. Uh, I'm still very, very unsure about what's going to happen. Um, so, yeah. I think that that sets it up perfectly for, for what's going to come in the sense that there's so many forces at play. That, that are continuing to shape Syria's domestic and foreign policy. And I mean, you're right about Turkey. That is probably a, a conversation in and of itself with regard to Turkey's policy with Syria and how that's going to play out for for the Syrian state, for, for Turkey, for the Kurds. And obviously we don't have time to delve into that much more now, but I, I think that what you've what you've said is is such a good sort of teaser of what we could see in terms of the the issues that are at play in the future. Certainly, and there is also the, the whole aspect of, I mean, domestically, the, the regime itself is very weak, right? Mm. So we constantly hear, read reports or, or also hear from, from friends and, and people that, that are in Syria about the fact that the regime essentially is not controlling parts of the country. There are, there are uh, militias that, that do most of the state's uh, work instead of the state. I mean, I've I've got family uh, that it's frequently in Latakia, and this is a part of the country that's meant to be uh, better off. hasn't been, there's a meal of fighting, it's it's, it's been, it's relatively rich, but still, even there, the situation on the ground is one of of a regime that essentially, it's it's not visible anymore. There are like militias, uh, unofficial groups, so even to re-establish, the, uh, and the regime has been trying in some parts of the country more than some others to re-establish its control, but it's it's a weak regime, and once you once you sort of rely on on different sort of groups, some of them domestic, some of them uh, uh, international, regional, to do, do your work for you, then if you're not strong enough, it's it's very hard to to kind of go back and say, well, actually. Uh, Thank you very much, but now I'm gonna I'm gonna take this back. So, so it's it's a long it's a long process, I guess. Uh, and we haven't even addressed the fact that the regime that caused a lot of the problems is still there and, and hasn't looked like it learned anything. If anything, it, it got worse. So, yeah. so unfortunately, I'm not very optimistic in, in the long term, which it's very sad. But 
Yeah, well, I guess this is where where academics have such an important role to play in in breaking down all of these these complex phenomena, trying to to raise awareness of of what's happening and how they're playing out. And I mean, you've you've just touched on a range of other issues concerning Syrian sovereignty, on domestic politics, on 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 um, post conflict transformation, and and those are all other factors that that fall outside the remit of your own research. So. I mean, there's only so much that we can do. There's only so much we can talk about now. But all these factors interact and 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 will have a massive role to play in, in Syria's Absolutely. future. Absolutely, yes. But Francesco, thank you so much for, for taking time to talk with us today. It's been wonderful to, to talk with you about your work. And I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. So thank you so much. Thank you very much. Bye, Simon. Thank you again, Francesco. And thank you for listening. Until next time.